Um, can I translate what that means? Why is this not working like this? How are you doing this? So everyone gives a really super technical answer. And then 62 F-bombs later, she's like, <laughs> when I was programming, I would effing well do this. This way. You're telling me today with all your fancy tools and stuff, you can't do this? So that part. They bullshit us, man. They bullshit us. I know they're lying, <laughs> bastards, all of them. This episode of the Map Round Show is proudly sponsored by Exelia Technologies. Exelia is committed to delivering innovative business-enabling solutions, ensuring cost-effective results, and specializing in AI, blockchain, real-time cloud-based dashboard solutions, ERP systems, data mining solutions, mobile apps, and with vast experience and expertise in native and cross-platform development. They also offer consulting services in both business and the technology fields, encapsulating the total solution offering desired by tech clients all around the world. For more information, check out exeliatech.com. That's E-X-E-L-I-A-Tech.com. Exelia was founded in the middle of an economic meltdown in Cyprus. You know, when the crisis hit, there was no way to even draw money out of an ATM, let alone fund a startup. So the founder, Margarita Maimouni, had to pawn her wedding ring to keep the business going. Fast forward to today, however, and Exelia Tech is a distributed team of technology specialists that is building tech solutions for clients all over the world. This is a true founder story and one that I hope will inspire you to believe in your dreams and to persevere despite what the world of business and entrepreneurship throws at you. So without further ado, let's get on with the show. How's it, guys? Welcome back to the Map Round Show. Today, we are thrilled to have with us from the bright lights of Cyprus, <laughs> uh, Margarita and Eric from Exilia Technologies. Welcome to the show, guys. Thanks very much. Thanks, Hamid. So this has been a long time in the coming, hasn't it, this interview? Yeah. Oh, yes. We've uh, definitely uh, missed, what, two times, I think, two or three times. I know, yeah. I know. Um, do you, so uh, did you survive the magging last week? We did. Can you believe that there was a mugging in Cyprus? Okay, we were. Uh, I know for you guys it was no big deal, but for us it was like the end of the world. I know, I know. Yeah. Who would have thought in Cyprus of all places, hey? Yeah. I know. Yeah. I think it was just last uh, last chat we had before how we were saying how how nice and peaceful it is over here, and that's why we'll get into that in this quite here, isn't it? <laughs> Exactly. Cool. So let's dive straight into the meat and the potatoes. So um, what is the headline backstory that our um, listeners and viewers need to, to know about Exelia and you guys personally at this time? I think one of the biggest um, headlines for us is that um, despite one of the biggest economic crises in um, Cyprus to ever hit Cyprus, other than maybe the war in 76, okay, um, we managed year on year to actually grow, uh, change our business, and um, attract amazing people into the team. I think that for us is our, our biggest uh, yeah. success story. I really do. So, survival. Survival is a story of uh, difficult entrepreneurship with so many curveballs, and I think survival is the theme. But you mentioned um, Cyprus and uh, the kind of early beginnings. So let's dive into that. So... Uh, from what I understand, Exelia was founded amongst a pretty difficult time in Cyprus. Um, can you walk us through that? 
Yeah. So um, we, um, I, I used to work for a, a software company, um, South African one. And uh, when uh, I left that company, we started Exalia Technologies, and that was in uh, March 2013. Well, we started in January 2013, and the biggest crisis ever to hit uh, Cyprus actually happened in March 2013. So um, it was quite a traumatic time for us because uh, I don't know if you guys are aware, but actual physical depositors' money was actually taken out of their banks. Um, and obviously, if you were starting a business, and it was across the board. It was for businesses. It was for individuals. It was just an absolute nightmare. And we had actually funded our business um, by bringing money in from outside, and we had brought that in on the Thursday evening, and the crisis actually happened on the uh, Saturday morning. So, yeah, for us, it was it was hectic, guys. It was very, very hectic. What's that actually like when uh, you can't draw money out of ATMs? What does that do to your motivations as an entrepreneur? I mean, keeping in mind you've just raised this funding and now suddenly you don't have access to it anymore and it was no fault of your own. So how did that affect your mindset about Exilia as a startup at the time? Well, I think, Matt, uh, when you saw people standing in queues all the way around the corner to be able to draw money from the ATMs, and eventually the ATMs had actually run out of money and we were waiting for money to be brought in from Germany, I think I think the, the trauma, to try and actually explain that trauma, is one big story by itself, and I'm sure that you can understand that. But I think the bigger trauma is that on the Thursday, the, the funds clear from international money clears in your account and you've got a balance and you say to yourself, well, you know, this is good for us, okay? We've probably got a roadmap that stretches, oh, I don't know, maybe a two-year roadmap. And then you log in on the Saturday afternoon and quite honestly, um, that money's just gone. It, it just doesn't exist. Um, it's uh, there, but it's actually frozen and you can't even access it to actually pay your guys money. So what did you do? I mean, I, I can't imagine that. I mean, imagine, you know what I mean? Like just as a, just as an, as an economic event, <laughs> it's like, it's like the end times of, uh, of anyone's dreams to found a technology business or any business for that matter. Can you walk us through what was your response to that as a founder? So we became um, a little bit innovative. We obviously called the staff together. We explained to the staff that it's going to be a very difficult period until this thing settles down and that we would have to um, either let people go or we would have to um, actually look at reducing their salaries for a period of time that we could maybe make that up later on in the, in, in the year, um, depending on how the thing was going to pan up because at that stage we really didn't know. Uh, and... Some people left immediately, uh, um, I must admit. That actually alleviated the pressure on us because, I mean, clearly we didn't have the money to be able to pay these salaries. <clears throat> that, that trauma lasted for about a week. And then what they then decided to do was they then allowed us to do bank transfers within the actual country itself. So um, just understand that you... Have a um, you have a certain amount of money, and the European Union actually says, "Okay, guys, you know we are guarantors for say a hundred thousand, and then the rest of the money actually just goes." So that hundred thousand, we obviously realise we have to use very very brightly, 
And uh, we realized soon that that wasn't going to work out too well for us because uh, that maybe gave us, I don't know, about a six-month uh, roadmap. Mm. And as the months started to go by and we were paying salaries, um, I, I started realizing that I'm going to have to do something very, very drastic. And uh, I even actually took my engagement ring, uh, went off to a pawn shop, asked them what I was actually going to be able to get that because you must realize we're getting now to the six-month period and the money's just running out and there's just no money to pay the salaries. Mm. Also bear in mind that uh, we weren't taking salaries ourselves. Uh, we wouldn't, um, I, I remember even running down to the uh, ATM and drawing money out of my South African credit card. Uh, and uh, trying to actually pay the, the salaries like that. So, um, yeah, the pawn shop, uh, I, I thought to myself after that, I thought, gee, I'm going to pawn my ring, and the value that he was going to give me was absolutely so ridiculous that it wouldn't have even given me a month roadmap mm. so, uh, or runway, and I thought, um, no, I'm going to have to do something different. I just have no idea what I'm going to have to do yeah. And, uh, yeah, bonded a, a property um, in another country, in Greece, um, got some money from that property, brought that money back into the country so that I could uh, carry on paying the salaries. Wow, that's a, quite an impressive story here. So so, the, so how did it all turn around? Can you walk us through the, the days and weeks where, you know, you, you managed to turn things around? Like how did that actually happen? Because it, it feels to me like, you know, when you – and I've been there, you know, when in 2000 – uh, you know, nine eleven happened. Basically, uh, I know I was running a business at the time, and it literally decimated. You know, like seventy percent of the businesses that I knew and the entrepreneurs that I knew. Um, so while it wasn't exactly the same sort of event, it was still something that was beyond your control and that was really decimating the local economy. So now here you are, you funding, you're trying to buy yourself time. Essentially, uh, you've just done that. How did you turn things around? Walk us through those uh, those days. I think we were very lucky in the fact that um, there was a lady that I had known as an acquaintance actually contacted me and said to me that uh, she worked for a um, humanitarian uh, company and that they needed software to be developed. Also, please bear in mind, okay, while we were paying these salaries, we were a startup. We had no, we had no clients. So there was nothing coming in either. It was all just going out, you know. Uh, so um, it was almost like uh, manna from heaven when she called me and she actually gave us a bit of a lifeline. And the reason that that was cash that was allowed to come into the country is it was actually coming from the U.S. They were actually funding it from the U.S. And uh, that at least gave us a little bit of breathing space and we – slowly, slowly started to claw our way up. We obviously went through other processes, but um, that managed to keep our head above water for the year to to finish. So, yeah. Matt, if I can paint a bit of a picture on uh, what was going on at the time. I was not working for Excelia uh, from the beginning. I joined a couple of years afterwards. Where I was working, uh, the announcement, and this is the Cypriot mentality, the announcement was, um, if you have or have not heard of the crisis, uh, well, our funds have been cut. We've lost more than 60% of the funds. So all of you are going to lose 60% of your salary. Uh, where my partner was working, they simply just weren't paid. That was a university. Uh, people just simply stopped being paid. Uh, this simple mentality, you know, we're, we're, we're hurting. You guys need to hurt. 
Um, every second shop closed down. People were driving around town because without being able to draw money from your card, you often can't pay for fuel. The little cash that you have, you buy food. And then the fuel started running out because the fuel industry couldn't fund. So then there's just traffic everywhere. Nobody has money. People are just not going to work. And, uh, and this is one of the reasons why I work for this woman is because despite all this, she went and poured a ring, did the property uh, bonding, did all of this to make sure that she paid the salaries. When left, right, and center, everyone was just, I lost money, you're not getting paid, end of story. And I was working at a company that it was just announced like that, guys. Everyone on your salaries, pretty much we're going to cut it in half, and we might not pay you next month. By the way, there's definitely no 13 salary this year, and we don't know how long we're going to go for. <laughs> Chill, you know? Um, and yeah, that's, that's the principle of, of having, uh, having the ethos that she has and pushing through. Bear in mind, this is a startup. Normally, startups just close the books and say, all right, we'll try this another day. That's pretty impressive. I do like that because, you know, this kind of theme comes through quite a lot with um, entrepreneurs who have built any business successfully um, is that they're tested. You know what I mean? Um, and they're tested significantly um, to such a point that, that I suppose that's the, really the, the difference where, you know, you get an, a founder, two founders, one, they both get tested, but one manages to persevere and then become successful. Um, whereas the other ones like, you know, screw this, this is too, too hard for me. And for whatever reason bails, you know, they're not prepared to pawn their, their engagement ring, for instance, <laughs> which by the way, kudos to you, <laughs> really kudos to you. Cool. Um, so, so now you, so Eric, you joined the team. Walk us through how the, the first beginnings of starting to win clients and, uh, and kind of building the, the, the intellectual property and, and really the, the fundamentals of the business that Exilia is today, which is now obviously servicing con- uh, clients all over the world. So walk us yeah. through those, that time. So, um, before I was hired, um, I was called in a crisis period. Um, Margie had the whole team working from her lounge in a house. This is obviously recently after the whole crisis and everything. And uh, she called me in because one piece of software wasn't working and the developers weren't getting through it. Little did she know then that there were other reasons why the software wasn't doing what it was doing. Um, I came in once, spent five hours um, and left. And they called me in again, spent 24 hours um, back-to-back at her lounge. She got her software out. And um, a year later, she thanked me by headhunting me uh, because she she remembered that I was there when she she needed me and um, everybody else that she had then wasn't anymore there. By which time, when I did join, it was a really small office, but it wasn't her lounge. Um, Luckily, because I don't know if I would have wanted to leave where I was, uh, I was pretty comfortable where I was, so um, she pulled me in uh, at a good time because I never wanted to work for the Cypriot managers. I can say that. I'm Cypriot. Um, and they're just not good, good, not good managers, not good bosses. So um, Down never with Cypriot for, managers, all of them. Yeah. <laughs> never worked for a woman before. I never had um, a South African uh, uh, boss before, but I knew her because I had worked with her at the previous software company. So I had already understood, you know, who she is and how she works. Uh, and then she invited me to uh, basically be her partner in this uh, journey. Mm-hmm. Um, a year after that, we moved office. 
uh, and a uh, short while after that, we kind of moved again. And um, I think we're a year away from moving again. And we're moving every time because we're growing and expanding. We're in uh, development teams in three countries, uh, sales teams in uh, two extra countries. Um, and we're just breaking records year by year. Mm-hmm. And it's only been well, almost six years since yeah. all of this started. Absolutely. Um, and I'd like, to, I'd like to say that it's, you know, the whole team that's mm-hmm. uh, managed to get this through. Um, but it's definitely not luck. It's definitely just perseverance. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the things we want to get into is just what, what the lesson, the biggest lesson learned, I think, for Margie was the people that she's surrounding herself with was the most important thing. Yeah. I, I think, Matt, that... Uh, one single lesson for people to understand is that you have to have like-minded people around with you. You have to be cut from the same cloth. And now we, I mean, I'm so adamant about that in the business. Eric vets the technical um, know-how. They go through a technical interview and then they are not hired based on their technical skills. They are only hired after I have actually had a look at what their ethos is. Because I honestly believe that your ethos um, it, it's all about that. The, it's, the, positive attracts positive as well as negative attracts negative. And quite honestly, we have been so blessed with the people that we have got in our remote offices, in our Cypriot office. And it just seems like the one person is better than the next person that comes in. And it's just, it's an amazing story. It really is. What do you look for when you say ethos? What do you personally look for in hiring someone let's just say this was an interview right so eric's like hey matt's got some really amazing java skills <laughs> um and then uh, so now it's round two of the interview and i'm sitting down in front of you what are you looking for in terms of character traits or personality traits how do you ensure that your culture essentially uh, is one that is fit for purpose in building exelia into one of the top technology software development houses so i think that's how you shock them You tell them that um, overtime is not paid for. Um, Overtime is a must. Overtime is something that um, is part of Exelia's culture. And you actually watch and see how they actually react to that. Because the ones that are in it for themselves, I guarantee you, you will see their whole calibration. It just changes completely. The ones that are in it for the long run and the ones that are in it as team players are the guys that are going to say, we're in this, we understand this, we, we just love this. I'm going to give you an example of a guy, um, one of my guys in Pakistan. He joined us when we were busy uh, trying to get out a big dev, um, a big app into the US space. He joined us and a week later, the poor guy was actually working, I kid you not, about 14 hours because he came in right at the last um, minute. I was obviously worried about this because I thought, oh my God, he's going to think uh, I've come to welcome to hell, you know. And um, I'd spoken to him um, because we obviously keep in contact with our remote officers via Slack, and I had a private chat with him. And you know what his answer to me was? Exelia is my family, and I have to be here to be able to make sure that this product goes out. Mm-hmm. And that's basically what we're looking for, you know. Um, we're looking for this to be a future for all the people that are working in Exelia, for their, for their children. You know, we, we're trying to build something that will actually continue after us. I'd like to talk to you about um, scaling up because it's interesting that you've got all these offices all in different parts of the world. Um, how have you approached 
scaling up? I think it's an interesting question that I've tried to answer many times through various live shows and podcasts last year. Um, but I'd love to get your view on it because it's definitely something that you guys have succeeded at. Um, so when you look at the, the, the kind of challenge of taking a small business into one that's actually have, having a presence in multiple countries, et cetera, what stands out for you as a key story or insight um, uh, as it relates to Exilia and scaling up into multiple countries? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey there, I know being an entrepreneur can be a very lonely experience. You sometimes get stuck, don't you? Well, if you're like me, being stuck sucks. But what if you could access the minds of over 850 CEOs who have built companies generating billions of dollars in revenue and access all of that knowledge in a fraction of a second? Well, the good news is you can literally do that today. What my team have built is Matt Brown AI. It is trained on all the interviews, over 850 of them that I've done to date, all my books, all the knowledge capital that has been generated over the last 10 years right here on the Matt Brown Show. And you can get access to all of that right now for free. So how do you get access to this? Well, head on over to mattbrownshow.com and at the top you'll see community. Hit that link, sign up, it's absolutely free and you'll be given instant access to Matt Brown AI and a community of over 100,000 subscribers. Obviously, skill is a big thing for us, okay, so they've got to be skilled. Um, but, again, it comes back to the people, uh, Matt. It really and truly does. And Eric has been instrumental in um, creating that, uh, his um, interview skills from a, um, from a pure technical perspective are brilliant. And uh, he manages to uh, get rid of the rubbish, to put so, put so uh, you know, from a technical perspective. We, we need people at a certain level and those guys have got to come in, you know. And I think Eric has definitely mastered that very, very well. <clears throat> Just so that you know, <clears throat> Eric used to actually be a um, lecturer, so he's very good at marking tests. And, um, yeah, I think he must he should walk it through his whole process. Yeah, let's yeah. hear about it. Um, yeah, well, the, the technical interview starts with you being at home and doing a, an exam. And uh, you can do whatever you want, use as many resources as you want. Um, in the end of the day, when, when we work at the office, we use the internet and we copy-paste code uh, and alter it to our needs because that's the modern way that you develop, right? You don't do anything without the help of the massive community that's called the internet. So we give them a few tests, give them a deadline because um, be as it may, the, the hardest skill to achieve as a developer is uh, timing. Um, tell them I need to know how long each one uh, of the tests took for you and just give them an expectations on that. Then um, little do they know that what I'm actually trying to evaluate here is not experience um, or skill. I'm only trying to evaluate potential. Uh, with that potential, I know that there's going to be growth. So if you come with us and you're at uh, level one or level 100, I couldn't care less. Um, you, you're going to grow to level 100 within a matter of weeks or months. Um, if you haven't grown by that level in two months or six months, um, you probably wouldn't stick around anyway. It, it's, too, it's too competitive. It's too difficult. So I need to measure potential. And how do I measure potential? I basically give them a shot and I just see how much passion and enthusiasm they have. You know, I'll give, two I'll give four tests and I'll say you only have to do two. Uh, you know, most of them come back and they do all four. I'm like, why would you do all four? 
because I wanted to, because it's exciting, because, you know, I've never done this technology before. Um, and that's what a programmer is, is a person who um, goes to work and programs codes for eight hours or more and goes home and as an idiot continues coding on his own hobby and personal projects. You know, we live and breathe this. So filtering out the people that can do that, show me that potential. And then coming to the next level where the second interview still doesn't involve monkey. It's me um, ask because now I've reviewed the tests and I've let them in a second interview. It's me trying to see whether they're going to lie to me or whether they feel that they need to hide from me. You know, um, I'll ask them, where did you get this line of code? And I'll say, oh, I wrote that. So then I'll say, okay, can I explain it? And when they can't explain it, this is how I'm going to be dealing with them on a day-to-day -day basis. Why would you lie to me in an interview? I'm super arrogant in interviews, but I'm not going to lie. You know, I'll say that I can ride a horse if I'm an actor, but if, they, if I'm given a horse and I'm like, can you run this 100 meters? I'm going to stop and say, hey, guys, you know, I just put that in my CV because it looked good. Once you once you clear out the people who can't can't get past an interview and and just tell me the honest honest experience and how they found the test and it was difficult or hard and all of that, then I know okay you know I, I've pegged you you've got potential um, now Mark is going to scare the living daylights out of you <laughs> and see if you're a fit uh, with the company and um, everyone who does make it through is 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 family and and you got to remember you know especially with jobs that have this close relations, constantly talking, spending time with each other. We spend time with each other much more than our life partners or girlfriends and wives, right? So this, this family pick that you get to have is more important than any other relationship you're going to have with people. So ultimately, it's the attitude. Do you get along with this person? Do you feel comfortable? Um, are you cracking jokes in the interview and you're laughing? Or are you nervous and you're never going to click with this person? Um, and how do we scale up from there? Okay, our software principles, we create teams of people, and then we just repeat the same model. In other words, if we're 500 people big, we're still going to have up to five working on a project. We're not going to uh, make it as if we're 100 people working on one project. You know, It's a brigade. It's a kitchen. There's only, there's only so many meat stations. Uh, and if you want to repeat that model, you just open more restaurants. You don't just make bigger kitchens. Yeah. So I'd like to get into the um, technology side of things, if you don't mind, for a moment. So um, obviously, as a custom software development house, you're building all kinds of uh, technology-driven products, blockchain technology is part of your stable. Um, how? What makes you different in this space? I'd like to, like to just land on that because… Um, there's lot of there's lots of software development houses around, you know, and oftentimes what we find is that, you know, while they say they can deliver things, they oftentimes they can't. And I think that there's no way that you would have been able to scale if you wasn't if you weren't able to deliver, right? Um, so I'd like to talk to you about how you what is your process around sort of software development and what can um, others learn from what you've learned in the process of scaling up as a software development house. So what is the what kind of technologies do you play with um, and what have you learned about building technology products that do really scale in the real world okay um, well funny enough um, we didn't realize that we were doing things differently um, up until we started seeing the reactions our potential customers had whenever they were like oh is that how you do it oh is that your business model because we thought we thought this is just a logical way to do it so definitely we're not one of these agencies that gives our people for hire we overhaul the project, uh, and the, the, the last 
quality step of approval is only on our side. So we like to think ourselves in that way of a technology partner. You want to innovate or you've got a team and you might be a technologist, you might not be, but eventually you want a product. And if, if all of our energy is focused on the product from the analyst and the developer, project manager, the CEO, all of us are just focusing on the product. The product's going to be good. So we, we give ourselves for the product and we make sure that we come in at a, at a, at a price that's going to be negotiated, but then that is going to be a fair deal for both sides. And in no history of software development ever has a product finished on time. Uh, and what approach there is, is that we, we absorb that extra time. We take it as a hit on the chin because what we're trying to do project by project is make a better product and then deliver it on, on a better time. So we don't bleed the company's money, especially when we recognize that they're a startup. We were a startup just now. Now we're not a startup. And we know that we can't go in and, and bleed you dry just because we want to make a profit. We just have to get better at our game. And choose God, we get so good at it that now we know that it's a perfect recipe and all we need to do is repeat that. The technologies we use, it's funny because um, yeah, we use pretty much anything that's software, any technology. And that's because I don't hire uh, on a specific stack. I hire people with potential uh, and I'll often throw them in a new stack that they've never worked with because that's also how they feed their passion. You know, they want to learn. I'm not going to keep them stagnated on something. So we love um, C Sharp. So all of us know C Sharp. Um, there's a lot of us that do Swift. So where we make um, iOS native apps for Apple iPhones and iPads. Um, a lot, big part of the team knows Java to do Android apps. Um, our team does Angular, so modern front-end web. But we have absolutely no fear of doing a project in React or Vue or any other front end um, or even using Java in the back end. Uh, and recently, we've tackled on uh, more and more NoSQL and Node.js projects. So it's pretty much every technology software stack that there is. Now, apart from software development, though, we've got a completely separate um, skill, and that's artificial intelligence. And that's not just machine learning as, um, you know, it's not that plug and play machine learning. We've extend, extended to the fact that we've got people who can define a new algorithm and you want to patent that and get that out there and write it from scratch. And you've lost me. <laughs> so, <clears throat> sorry, carry on. There you are. You're back now. Yeah. Your facial expression is priceless. <laughs> I know. I'm, I literally wear my heart in my sleeve. I'd fit in great over there. I'm full of potential. It's unexpressed, though. <laughs> Carry on. Sorry, you're saying about AI. Yeah, yeah. So we've got a, we, we're, we're constantly expanding our team for AI because AI is no longer a buzzword. This has kind of broken through that. While blockchain is still in its baby steps of buzzworthiness and people don't know, they just throw it in the project. AI is finally where we can actually use it. We can go to the market and say, hey, uh, you've got a lot of data. You can sell the data and make a lot of money. Or we can do stuff that we couldn't do before uh, by using you know, artificial intelligence or specific machine learning algorithms or deep learning. Uh, and I'm not going to get too technical with all of that. Um, and then separately, we're building our expertise in blockchain. And if anyone claims to be a blockchain expert, uh, you know that they're lying to you. It's, it's way too recent of a technology, right? Um, so we can't say we're blockchain experts, 
but I'm really proud to say that we can we can tackle blockchain projects and we can do some really amazing things with this technology. Mm. And I'm, I don't mean crypto only. You know, blockchain is a it's a beast of its own. I love this because um, the other day I was uh, interviewing a chap called Brett Sinclair. And he runs a big cloud uh, company over here. They help enterprise companies sort of adopt cloud and what have you. And he was basically telling me, he said, look, his view is this. He said, five years ago, you should have been building a technology business. But today, you should be building a data and an AI business, which is really interesting, right? Which is kind of what you've said, which is this focus of yours, you know, very much being future fit in terms of playing with these very much exponentially disruptive world-changing technologies like AI and uh, building products that really do move the needle for, for, cl- for your clients. Um, but I want to talk to you specifically about AI. What is your view on that? Is it really a doomsday scenario? I mean, you're building and working with this tech on a daily basis. I mean, sh- how alarmed should entrepreneurs be, one? Uh, and two, what are the kind of immediate low-hanging opportunities for any business to adopt AI? Well, that's the thing. See, my opinion on AI is it's definitely not doomsday scenario. It's, it's, it's basically, for me, a new programming language. And the, a new programmer comes into the play, and that's the computer itself. If a company that's in technology is not dealing with AI, uh, in a couple of years, it will be as if they're writing the most legacy code. It's as if they're using the oldest systems, and one peek or glance at the system, you'll realize that they're, they're old and you can't work with them, and they're stagnated. You know how it looks like when you open software from 1997 and you'll have a laugh? Or when you take a peek at what the teller is using at the bank, and you say, oh, my God, is that what they're using? That's, is that where my money's sitting with? You know, something that looks like a, a, a sketch drug. Maybe their screens are black and green still, you know. And, and that's what AI is. It's the new language that technology uses and not software. I don't want to confuse the fact that we do software and we do AI. That's two different things. And then AI comes into so many flavors, you know. It's not just about chatbots and, um, uh, yeah. Now, the, what we do with AI is not what anyone else does. We don't just focus on, hey, let's just do uh, natural language processing or let's just get some textual analytics. We will tackle any problem and try to involve the computer in making this problem faster or producing more accurate results or maybe being the fundamental solution to it. So for us, AI is, is a tool and it's now the most powerful tool kids have got. And um, like Margie mentioned, we've also do uh, some IoT projects. Uh, like I said, we involve ourselves in anything that has to do with technology. Um, software is the main direction on this because we're all software engineers. Uh, and with partnerships that we have lately, now we can also do hardware. So we can make our brainchild and put it in a little box and mail it to you. Um, and IoT is part of that infrastructure. And yeah, the take, take on AI is if you're not dealing with AI, you're not a technologist. And in a couple of years will be so apparent. Yeah, I love that. Margie, just a quick one for you. How do, are you a technical brain? I mean, do you understand code and C-sharp and all that stuff? So I used to be a programmer or, or in my past. <laughs> I no longer program, but I certainly understand the fundamentals. And I also understand it from a pure timing perspective. So 
I might not be up to date with the latest technologies, but when they explain it to me and um, it sounds like gibberish because, honestly, they love doing that to you, the programmers, okay? They, they, they love shrouding everything, okay? And then I'll say to them, sorry, guys, I don't get that. If we were doing that 10 years ago, okay, I can't believe that you guys can't do this now. So, yeah, I, I used to be a programmer in my past life. <laughs> And it's interesting for me that because it's kind of like, well, how much do you need to know in the, in like, so take my team, for instance, like I interviewed a guy this morning and he was saying stuff to me. I was like, I don't actually know what the hell it is that you're talking about. <laughs> I know I need to fill the role, you know what I mean? Uh, but I don't really know. I don't need to know the detail, if that makes sense. Um, so it's the same, I suppose, with Elon Musk, but maybe he does know everything there is to know about rocket design and stuff. Who really knows? You know what I'm saying? I'm sure he knows a lot, but he must rely on the knowledge of others in order to help deliver on that product, right? Um, so just uh, just a question from your side, like to the entrepreneur who wants to build a technology product, do they really need to know code or can they just understand something like business and sales and marketing and then use a technical founder to actually build the product? Like what's the, what's the best, um, you know, founding scenario for an entrepreneur who wants to build the next big Uber? So I don't believe that um, I, I, I don't believe technologists per se can actually purely run a business. I think it's a very very different beast. However, if you're going to run a technology company, you cannot not be technical. So in our scenario, I was lucky enough to have found Eric, and Eric is my partner in every way um, because, quite honestly, um, Eric takes care of the technical stuff, and I take care of the running of the business. And I, I fall somewhere in between that I understand the technology to a degree that I, I can actually understand what, what the guys are talking about. I think that's, that's a, um, a decent recipe, I think. Um, I, can I translate what that means? Uh, Margie will <laughs> walk in the room and tell us, why is this not working like this? How are you doing this? So everyone gives a really super technical answer. And then 62 F-bombs later, she's like... <laughs> When I was programming, I would effing well do this, this way. You're telling me today with all your fancy tools and stuff, you can't do this? So that part. They bullshit us, Matt. They bullshit us. I know, they're lying, <laughs> bastards, all of them. But, you know, there's a truth, there's truth in that, right? If she can't tell when she's being uh, BS, uh, she'll be running amok. And that is what happened when she started the company in the beginning, right? Um, she had people that she couldn't trust. And uh, slowly, slowly, they thought, hey, here's another bullshit story. Now, she was clever enough, or maybe it's the experience that she had, that allowed her to filter through this and eventually start to say, um, are, these guys, are these guys BSing me? Yeah. But um, if you're not a technologist, then you're, you're not even right hand. The person who's trying to run this with you needs to be there. Mm -hmm. And you need... To ultimate trust in this. And this is funny because we're going through an exercise now where um, companies are asking us to fill in this gap for them. But what's going on is that they can't pursue a technology uh, venture capitalist or um, in any which way get money if they can't prove that they are technologists themselves. And that just goes to show that investors know about this game and they know that if you can't tell the BS in your internal team, you're not going to survive. But I think the reverse is also true, unfortunately. Um, you know, a technical guy can't go to a venture capitalist, okay, and say, oh, by the way, you know, I've got this amazing idea. I'll be able to produce the thing. And 
Then the first question that he asks about financials and, and the technical guys like, um, well, you know, normally technical guys will build a rocket for you. Uh, I promise you, Matt, they, they want to build the very best product because that is who they are. And if, if you don't hold them back to say, guys, this is an MVP, it's not a rocket. Okay. Then that's a problem as well. So I think it's, yeah, yeah. I think it's, I really think you need the two halves to make the no, one person. I agree, and and people look at the Zuckerbergs out there and they think, hey, he's a you know he's a coder. Uh, I'll do what he does. He's a bad example <laughs> of what you should be doing in this industry, right? He's he's lucky. Sorry, sorry, Mark, if you're watching this. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Down down to Zuckerbergs. <laughs> Well, it's interesting that, right? Because what you, what we're touching on here is just so important, you know, because I think you do need to know something. Like you need to know if you're going to build a technology product. And even if you do have a technical founder and you're like the entrepreneur who does, is going to do the business in sales, marketing, relationship management, operations, et cetera. And you've got, listen, your, your CTO is just the guy who's only ever going to build software, but you're going to do everything else. You know, you have to be on the same page at some point, right? So it's not enough to be kind of blind to the realities of what goes into a technical product. Like, you you know what I mean? Like you're just opening yourself up to risk, misunderstanding or, you know, things that don't get translated properly. And so it becomes an issue further down the line. Um, so the other thing is also true in the context of outsourcing, right? So for instance, we... Um, are in the process now of building an AI component to our offering, right? Um, but now in my case, all I need to know is, will it deliver on the vision for the business? But when it comes to paying for the development of AI, I'm using that as an example, but it can be any software product. When you start to outsource things, the same is also true. How do you know when your service provider is being transparent enough when delivering on a project, right? And you've actually said this earlier, Eric, where it's like, well, if you're, de- if you're late in terms of the agreed delivery date for the product, you actually absorb that cost, right? Which is a really interesting commitment that you make to your clients. But when, when you are outsourcing technical development, what are some of the red flags uh, to look out for? And how do you guys approach uh, helping clients feel comfortable with, um, you know, working with a distributed team of software developers all around the world? Well, I'll say what's worked for us the best is that we're completely fearless in just, just like give it, give it to us, you know. Let's have the workshop. Let's bring your technical team. Let's look at the proposal and question every decision. Let's, you know, let's deep dive on this. Why we're, we're fearless in that sense. And when we see our competitors, you know, what kind of proposals they give out there with these, um, uh, it's not just buzzwords, but it's, you know, everything's wrapped up in one line. Um, I can look at it from a distance and say, my God, they, they, either they don't know what they're doing or um, they're just sucking this guy dry out of their money. You know, the way we cost something, we separately, I do a time exercise and Maggie will do a, a budget exercise. I'll come and tell her how long the team will take to produce this work. And that's so important that I land that time because I'm, I'm, I'm basically negotiating if we're going to make a profit on this or not. She'll go then and punch it through a normal formula that just outputs that in money, and that's how it goes out. The more accurate we are, the closer we're going to be to what we should be costing. And every time we finish a project, we go back, we look at the timings, and we readjust. 
why were we off this much? Why were you off that much? Uh, and it's just, we, we find that people come back to us when they say, guys, we're going to look at another three options. Is that okay with you? I'll tell them, if you weren't looking at other options, I'd pretty much call you a fool because how can you just pick the first guy yeah, coming but across? Yeah, it's not only based on that, okay? You know, the thing is that um, I don't believe that we're the cheapest out there. Um, we're definitely not the Indian model. But I think that the biggest advantage is that you're getting value for money. Yeah. I, think the, um, I think the other thing um, for us that's very, very important is that we don't like the pure vendor, the pure vendor relationship. We want to be a technology partner. We need to make the client feel secure because there's nothing more scary than a client actually outsourcing their dev work to a company like us and then thinking, oh, my God, you know, what's going to happen with my IP and things like that. Those things are very, very, very transparent from our side. You know, we the, the code doesn't belong to us. We are custodians of the code for the period that we're actually developing it. We don't like holding the, the client's ransom because at the end of the day, okay, your best formula is that they come back to you because the model's actually working. That's yeah. that's the biggest, biggest thing, I think. Um, and I think that that's what definitely sets us apart. Mm -hmm. We're not a vendor, uh, Matt. We genuinely are just a technology partner. We got we a bunch of people that absolutely love technology and love creating the best thing that we possibly can. Yeah, and the reason why we're custom software, we don't reuse mm -hmm. code because evidently that's the IP that we created for a client. Exactly. Okay. So should one outsource and when should one outsource IP or software development? Because it raises questions, right? Where does the IP sit actually? And I've got a few clients here that are that have product market fit locally. And they're looking to scale into America. They're looking to scale into Europe. And so IP becomes a really big deal uh, as in terms of scale, right? It's, it's like it's one thing to get a product in market and get some customers and so forth. It's an entirely different thing when you're dealing with a distributed team and there's concepts like IP and should you register your company in Delaware because of the tax breaks? And that's pretty much where all <laughs> you know tech companies register their IP, you know, either that or Mauritius and what have you. So, um, so... When in the context of outsourcing, should one even consider, you know, working with the likes of Exilia? Um, for instance, I may, as a technology product business, for argument's sake, I may have a team of five developers here. When should I be considering outsourcing or just building my own internal capability? And in the context of outsourcing, what are your views on IP management in that context? So we've had a couple of, um, uh, just recently we've had a couple of clients that are technology companies, and so they've got their own dev house. What, what we've noticed and what they've noticed as well is that they get to capacity very, very quickly. So, But they've got a product. So either they're going to be scaling on an ongoing basis, which is very, very scary for these companies, because at the end of the day, do you know, you know do I need 50 developers later down the road? And what we've noticed is the minute they've reached capacity, but the market is moving faster than what they can actually produce, what is going out, that overflow work, okay, is very good typical work that will come to Exelia. And especially on, a, on an initial engagement, I think that it's very good to try Exelia out with a small portion of overflow work. See how the relationship works, you know, see how you guys gel, see if, I can work with these guys, see if I can see these guys as an extension to my team. And as you build that relationship going forward, okay, so they will be more comfortable with giving you more work. From our side, it's crystal clear. The IP belongs to the client. 
It's crystal clear. There's no, oh, well, maybe it doesn't or maybe it doesn't. No, that is what we do. We develop software and we develop software for other clients. That is what we do. Okay, interesting. Talk to me about agile software development. Is that a process that you guys use? Because that's kind of what you've just said, right? Markets, I mean, we know this to be true in our own case because we only work with technology businesses in the context of lead generation. So we borrowed the concept of agile, well, we borrowed the word agile from software development and bastardized it into the marketing space. (laughs) So now we do agile marketing, you know, but it's to address the same thing that you've just said, Margarita, which is, this world of technology isn't slowing down, it's getting faster. And so even if you do have your internal teams, it's sometimes, you know, you, you just in order to, to adapt to that pace of change, you need a partner who can actually help you remain relevant, right? Um, so talk to us about your agile software development process. Is that core to what you guys do or is there more that um, we need to know? I think Eric can answer yeah. that. Okay, from an agile perspective, the way we run the teams. Yeah. We, we do agile yeah. as agile can be, but we only do it internally. And what does that mean? Is we don't like how agile gives so much power and flexibility to the client because in the end of the day, we're experts in the software development and not the product development, but the software. And when we involve them in that decision-making, they'll often steer away and they'll make bad decisions. And we want, we want the people that work with us, our partners in other words, to, to feel comfortable that we're making all the right decisions. So we're not agile in the way that we give them the capability of seeing the progress too frequently and judge on it and then steer the direction away. So we'll remove that part and give you a direction, maybe a month to month, where you can just feel comfortable in saying, right, these guys, they're doing what I want them to do. They're doing the vision. How they're going to do it is up to them because that's what they know well. And what my vision is, is what I do because that's my product. That's what I know well. So in that sense, everything else is pretty much the modern agile way and the way that sprints work and the way our demos and milestones work. But we don't, we don't lose that power of control and we, we allow them to feel that they're confident. Okay. You know what? These guys do know what they're doing. And when the date comes, I'm going to see something, I'm going to be blown away. And that's our end goal. Yeah, we've bet the scope down, Matt, because you know what the problem is, is that um, if you give carte blanche, okay, in the true sense of agile, well, you know, you can come to the end of a spend of X amount, okay, and you actually still don't have a tangible, a tangible product. Mm-hmm. And it's because you've changed direction so many times. So within the scope, we bet the scope down in the beginning, and then we run it internally. It's a fixed cost that we give out to the client, and then internally we'll either grow or shrink the team as we actually need it from the agile process, yeah. 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 Imagine a great artist painting a, a portrait, and um, every three minutes turning around and saying, hey, what do you think? You know, uh, especially if it's a female portrait, she'll say, yeah, can you trim off 10 years of me? Like, nice. yeah, but the vision was, nice. Nice. this is what it's going to look like. What happens when I turn it only at the end? And she's like, wow, that's awesome, right? I don't, I'm the, I'm the artist here. Um, tell me something. I want to talk about the South African office just for a second. Um, what is Exelia's uh, play over here locally within the South African region? So for the time being, Exelia's office in South Africa is a pure biz dev office. And um, we want to actually understand whether or not we can grow that market to see 
Um, if that market grows successfully, we are definitely not adverse to actually creating a, a full-time office there with developers and everything. But currently, it's a business office. Mm -hmm. That's how we currently run it. Yeah. Very advantageous because of we're still in the same time zone. Yeah. Uh, unlike some of the other clients that have a bit of a difficulty with uh, the hours. That's actually a very important point, eh? that one, the time zone difference. So like we're opening an office in Austin, Texas. That's an eight-hour difference. So nine o'clock here is one o'clock in the morning there. So that's like, it's pretty hard. But if you're in Australia, it's like five o'clock uh, here is 9 a.m. there. So or 4, 4, 4, 4 p.m. actually. So then there's, it makes the business continuity argument quite a, uh, quite a lot easier, I suppose. I mean, how important is time difference in your world? If you're, pro if you're providing a software development service to clients all over in all regions, how do you manage this time difference issue and the continuity of business? So we've got clients that are sitting in Colorado, New York, and um, California, and it, it is a challenge. And what we've um, done, not from the development perspective, but from speaking to the clients, you've got to have meetings with them. You've got to have them feeling secure. So it's a constant ongoing thing. And the way that we've actually um, worked around that one is that we've taken <clears throat> a day in the week that we swap our time around and we work their time. And they've taken a day a week and they swap their time around and work our time so that we all, um, you know, aligned. And then uh, that the, 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 the three days that are left after that, okay, well, um, you know, we just managed to continue, but we continue with Slack as well during the evening process as well. Yeah. And we, we normally cut off around about 10, 10 p.m. on our side yeah, when yeah. speaking to them. But it's, uh, um, with the uh, American clients, there's also a, a nice sense of um, Christmas for them. They wake up to yeah. uh, a gift of, hey, what did my Cypress office do? And then they wake up and they're like, oh, look what they've done. And it's, it's a nice experience um, and it works well. The meetings are hard and often we accommodate more because, you know, the client is the client. We need to make sure that they're happy. But uh, we've got it working. Yeah. Tell me, guys, tell me guys one, uh, just a couple more questions. Um, what is the one injustice that you see in the space when you, with your, with your view on global software development, what is the one injustice that you see? Um, and, uh, can you walk us through what it is and, and why you feel the way you do about it? Yeah, I think, I think that you should take, um, well, you, you've got one, I've got one. Um, what, 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 Maybe I'll start with what irks me. Yeah. Uh, what leads on to the injustice is how we spent countless hours trying to master something and learn it and do it really well uh, when sometimes people out there don't, don't appreciate it or will just throw it out. Uh, and the word blockchain resonates really well here. You know, it's, uh, it's recently been included as a word in a project. Uh, I don't know. They could be selling fruit and all of a sudden they want to put blockchain in it. Um, not that you can't do that, by the way, but uh, that, that's, uh, that's injustice because what happens is I'm almost afraid to say that we do blockchain because now that's undervaluing what we do. Oh, my God, they're, they're, they're another company that just does blockchain, so they must be riding, yeah, they're riding the wave and they're obviously not skilled. And, you know, you get this under impression of um, maybe I shouldn't say this word, you know, uh, and that's, that's unfair because we put so much sweat and blood in trying to establish a core, um, making this a new arm in a company, uh, appreciating the complexity behind this technology. And then you get people that just want to throw that word around. 
And then they uh, have a freak out when you tell them how much it's going to cost to build, you know, something. The word artificial intelligence should be scary. The word blockchain should be scary. It's not your simple um, website with a couple of buttons. And that's, that's a big injustice. But, you know, as time goes forward, the, uh, the scams and the uh, low balloon, uh, low Earth orbit kind of uh, blockchain projects will disappear. And you'll get only these ones that are, you know, flying at a million miles away from Earth. And those are the really good ones, which is great because that's where AI is coming to be. And I can appreciate working for AI, AI more now than I did a few years ago. I think one of the injustices that um, that irks me is because we are privy to meeting with so many startups and I, I feel that, you know, the bigger the project, um, the more the people that are actually quoting on the actual project, it becomes like they shroud it, you know, with a lot of technology talk and um, all of a sudden this cost, you're looking at this cost and you're saying to yourself, wow, you know, that really sounds massively inflated. And because it's coming from a much bigger company, you know, um, these big contracts just seem to fly through. Yet a small guy will come along and he'll say, but wait a minute, guys, you know, there's, there's a massive inflation here, okay, of cost. I, I honestly don't believe that this cost is actually justified. You'll come in with a quote, okay, and they'll scrutinize every single line, okay, and then you still lose the contract because <laughs> you're the small guy on the block, okay, yet the bigger guys have got these inflated things and you're thinking to yourself, but sorry, we're going to we're gonna develop the same software here, guys, and that we've definitely seen more and more and, in fact, we've experienced it that on bigger contracts, those contracts go through easier than the smaller contracts, and we're talking like the ten and twenty thousand euro contracts. There's so much scrutiny in that space. Yeah. Yet the two hundred and three hundred thousand contracts, because for whatever the reason is, okay, these just seem to uh, to sell through, and that definitely irks us. Yeah. We don't want to get caught in that in that space. You know, we're going to still stick to our core values, and our core values are to deliver um, value for the client. And that value's got to be good value. And I, I, I'm adamant for as long as I'll be here, I think that that's just, uh, it's just got to be one of our core values. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. Where are you guys heading? I mean, you've, you've obviously done a lot of work to get to this point, but where, what's on the horizon for you guys? So I think 2019, uh, we will definitely have a presence of an office either in the UK or the US. I think the prize, yeah, the absolute prize would be if we could have it in both. We've already started discussions in both of the places. And, in fact, yeah, um, we're hoping that both will come to fruit, but definitely one. We'll definitely have a presence in one of those. Yeah. Okay. And we, uh, we're learning to um, – a big lesson to us is we, we used to be drilled down to the price, down, 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 and then we'd lose appreciation for what we're doing. Uh, and it's such a refreshing take when you're dealing with London and New York clients – who they want you to price it a little bit more because that's that's the way they can appreciate the work that you're doing. You know, they just value it on uh, the dollar or the pound sign. So um, I want to ask you guys this one. If there was one piece of advice that you really want entrepreneurs to know, um, either about business or about software development, what would that be? I think about business, um, I think just persevere. Honest to God, just persevere. I know you hear it all the time, and I'm sure somebody sitting out there is thinking, yeah, right, okay. 
but it honestly is it honestly is just pure perseverance and when you think that you're in this black tunnel and you think there is absolutely never going to be any light you'll be surprised okay the light just does come from somewhere Eric for you yeah yeah perseverance um, obviously the word survival is key here I don't think people understand how hard it is um, maybe harder for a woman in business uh, maybe harder for um, a person trying to do something in a market that's collapsing and has to reach out, uh, not having people that you can trust. Survival is key. And once you survive, you'll just naturally grow because that's, that's the, you can't, you can't stick around and just not grow. Yeah. So survival. Why do you do what you do? Margarita's mainly for you. What gets you out of bed as the CEO of Exilia? What gets you out of bed in the morning? Absolutely enjoy the space that we're in. I love the products that we're doing. I love seeing how the people are growing on a day-by-day basis they grow. And quite honestly, I think that um, we're just busy launching, we've just launched now a product into the US market. It's called Power. Go check it out, please, okay? It is an amazing, amazing product with three amazing women. And the absolute appreciation and the excitement and the, the absolute thrill of getting this thing onto the onto the app store for us and the journey that we've had with these ladies, it's just been unbelievable. And that really gets me out of bed. Cool. Guys, that concludes your time on the Map Round Show. Thank you so much for um, giving me the opportunity to help tell your story on a world stage. Thank you so much, Matt. We really um, uh, enjoyed it. And thanks for your time. Yeah, thank you very much for your time. Cheers, guys. Onwards and upwards. Peace. This edition of the Map Round Show is brought to you by networkspace.co.za. In fact, our studios are here in building number four at Network Space up in Johannesburg. These guys have made us a huge deal, have really bent over backwards to give us the kind of service that most exciting businesses deserve. If you want more information about Network Space, you can actually come and check out our studio. We are always open to meet new entrepreneurs and business owners from around the country, and you can do that right Right here at networkspace.coza. Thanks for checking out the Map Round Show, guys. And if you'd like to get the Kung Fu put in your ninja, check out digitalkungfu.co.za. Ever wanted to become a best-selling author? Well, I'm in the influence business and I work with business owners and CEOs and business leaders to help them scale their influence. And we do this as a team by helping you to become a best-selling author, sought-after speaker and industry influencer in only 30 days. My team and I have developed a system that delivers a best-selling book and a launch campaign 300% faster and 50% less cost than anyone else in North America. This system is incredibly efficient. One of my Clients Haiku went from a 2% share of voice globally to an 11% share of voice globally in only seven days. If you'd like more information, head on over to showworksmedia.com for more. That is showworks with an X.com.